Can I ask you a personal question? Are you a patient person? Are you someone who likes or even welcomes the opportunity to wait? I did some digging and I, and I found some stats, some older, some new, some perhaps more accurate than others, but it gives us a place to start our conversation. It suggested that, uh, that Americans collectively spend about 37 billion hours per year waiting somewhere on something. Or to be a little more specific, on average, 32 minutes when we wait to visit in a doctor's office, uh, 28 minutes in security lines when we're traveling, 20 minutes a day sitting in traffic, or if you live in a major city, you can add about a third more to that length. 15 minutes waiting for a table at a restaurant. 21 minutes waiting for your significant other to get ready to go out. But, which is shorter than the 32 minutes you spent already getting ready yourself. 13 hours a year waiting on hold before finally getting to talk with someone in customer service. Now, Try as I might, I was unable to even find a computation for how long the average wait is in a typical motor vehicle bureau. Though I can personally tell you that it took me well over an hour to get one of the very first new permanent driver's license IDs that the state of Ohio is now issuing. And that was after all the time I'd actually waited to be able just to get up to the counter. Now I'm told that things are better now, that you can actually get in line, online, before you ever walk in the door. But... Uh, I'll have to check that out. Well, research also led me to discover that there's a whole science dedicated to designing the most efficient lines or cues in which we have to wait. That there are things that separate good queuing experience from a bad one. And it's not just the speed of the line. While the waiting time is often hard to cut down, perception can be altered with good line design and management. Disney's Imagineering Studio demonstrates probably some of the greatest skills in line design management. In fact, there's actually a whole dedicated facility under Cinderella's Castle in the Orlando theme park where waiting times and queues are monitored and managed constantly. Disney's even managed to make waiting so pleasurable experience that when crowds are light and lines are short, families have been known to linger too long in the queues because the kids don't want to move on any faster, thinking that the ride has already begun for them in the line. Well, one design lab uh, leader says that a wait is a psychological state, or another queuing theory expert at MIT says, when we face uncertainty as a how to behave in line, we're forced into a mental stress that he calls cue calculus. I thought maybe that's something like the agony we experience after having very carefully chosen what we're certain is the shortest checkout line in Kroger's, only to have half the people who've been waiting all around us get out the door before we've even started to see our stuff begin to cross the checkout scanner. All right, I, I've already stirred up all kinds of feelings that you didn't have, didn't even have percolating in your heads before you came to this message. But let me ask you once again, are you a patient person? Do you find it easy to wait? Well, we come this morning to a next to the last stop on our journey through the New Testament letter of James, 
We're chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, that begin with these words. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient. It may be one of the most practical lessons that we're able to learn from this series that we have called Blue Jeans Theology. What is it that makes waiting, being patient, so hard? Well, there are lots of reasons, and unique circumstances of each situation surely add their color. But what can we learn from these verses from James? Well, I'd like to hang our thoughts on three influencing factors that I think our text actually suggests for us. Now, the first is that being patient understandably has something to do with the passing of time. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Well, if you have been with us for the start of the series, or if you just know about the situation at the time of this letter's writing, you'll recall that James may have been one of, if not the earliest books written to become a part of the New Testament. And the church that James led in Jerusalem was young, and it had experienced a very dynamic beginning after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven. And the strong hope had clearly been that it wouldn't be too long before Jesus would come back again. As the disciples watched him being taken up into the clouds until they couldn't see him anymore, they still kept looking. And while they were straining to see if they could get a last glimpse, two white-robed men, angels, we assume, suddenly stood among them and said, Why are you standing here staring into the heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, there may have been some debate, but the clear assumption the disciples had was that his return would happen soon. They even came to share a word of encouragement with each other, Maranatha. It was drawn from their native Aramaic tongue, and it just meant, come, Lord. It was a strongly expectant word, perhaps even a bit of a petition. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And here, James, in a, in a similar way, writes, he says that we are to wait patiently, that we, that we wait for the Lord to return. And then he concludes, the coming of the Lord is near. He clearly also thought and hoped that the countdown clock was getting close to zero. But, but some, time, some time it clearly passed, and you know how time is. When the clock keeps ticking and ticking, we often grow impatient. Over time, we become more and more impatient as a culture. If we wait over three or four minutes in the line of a fast food restaurant, we start tapping our fingers on the steering wheel, and we may even think about hitting our horns. When McDonald's, not too, too long ago, introduced their cook-to-order quarter pounder that's made with fresh beef, it took them one minute longer to prepare and cook them than it did when they were using the frozen patty version. And patience in their initial test market quickly grew thin when customers found that it took them one whole more minute to get served. 
And it was only after the customers learned that the quality of the burger was supposed to be improved that they reined back a little bit of their impatience. We, we don't like to wait. Patience is a, stuff, a tough skill to, to master. Whether we're waiting for burgers or even marshmallows. Yep, I said, I said marshmallows. There was a, there was a lab controlled, uh, research project done back in the seventies, later repeated in the eighties and nineties that tested preschool age children by placing before each one of them a single marshmallow with the instruction before they were then left alone that if they could resist the temptation to eat the marshmallow before 15 minutes passed, they would get two marshmallows. Now, now the point of the study was to try and determine if helping children develop delayed gratification at such a, a young age would help predict uh, or impact future achievement. Well, the test was replicated even again more recently, though mercifully the testing time was shortened to seven minutes max rather than a 15-minute wait for those little kids. Well, you can imagine the challenge this experiment created for these children. Seven minutes or 15 minutes, few ever ended up with two marshmallows because young or old we don't like to wait at least not that long now the church was promised that jesus would return and that it would be soon but soon can be a relative term can it and and time had become to pass had come to pass and the circumstances to change and patience was being tested james uses a very descriptive word for patience in verse 7 in the original language in which the letter was written, the word literally means long-tempered. That's as opposed to short-tempered, or those who would very quickly always fail the marshmallow test. The longer the clock ticks, the shorter the span of patience for lots of us. James helps his readers and us by employing not a marshmallow, but a farmer illustration. Now, if there ever were people who have to be willing to wait, whether in ancient days or even today, it certainly has to be farmers. I like the way uh, Warren Wearsby puts it. He says, if a man is impatient, then he had better not become a farmer. No crop appears overnight except perhaps a crop of weeds, and no farmer has control over the weather. Too much rain, it can cause the crop to rot. Too much sun, it can burn up. An early frost can kill the crop. How long-suffering the farmer must be with the weather. Now, now the growing season in Palestine typically experienced two periods of essential rain, one appropriately called the early rain and the other the latter rain, or the rains of the fall and the spring. And all the farmer had to do was to wait. There was no way to nudge either of the rains into an earlier falling. Mother Nature always has her own clock. And the seeds that were planted, they required time too. When I was little, my, my dad and I planted our first garden. We had a, a fenced-in patch of ground in the back of the parsonage that had once been a dog pen, so it was full of all kinds of meat bones, which had to be dug out of the soil. But that's not what I remember most. What I remember is planting the corn and the beans from the seeds. My dad hoisted the hoe, and I dropped the seeds carefully where they were supposed to go in the quantity as directed and he promptly would cover it over with uh, with the nourishing soil we were a team and then we had to wait or at least my dad did 
But the next morning, I was actually back in the garden, digging through the rows, trying to find out whether we had anything growing yet. I know it was only a day, but I was just a kid, and I didn't know any better until my dad straightened me out and counseled me towards patience. Now, I'm not saying I didn't go out there and do any more digging, but I, but I did try to be patient. A farmer has to worry about rain to water the ground as well as time for the seeds to germinate and grow. This waiting, patient, long-tempered demand of farming is tough. James says that farmers have to live a life of patient trust. Now, that doesn't mean that they do nothing to bring about the crops. Uh, there's plowing and there's sowing and there's weeding and there's the hard work of the harvesting. But underlying it all is this deep sense of trust that the rain and the soil and the sun will eventually bring the harvest. In fact, James says that these farmers eagerly look for the valuable harvest. They wait and hope. Now, I've already said that I tend to get restless sometimes before I should. Maybe it's meaning digging up seeds before their time, giving up too quickly. I can even sometimes wonder if I'm honest since it's been a long time since Jesus said that he was coming back soon. How long does soon have to be? Patience is trusting, James says, for a very long time, if need be, that what God has promised will happen, that the rains will come, that the seeds will grow, and that the harvest will result. The Apostle Peter once wrote that we can easily get our sense of our timing and God's timing confused. He put it this way in Second Peter 3, uh, verse 3. He says, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. Mocking the truth and following their own desires, they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? And, and then a few verses later, Peter says in verse 8, you must not forget that this, this one thing, dear friends, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a, and a thousand years is, is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Or another translation captures a couple of phrases like this. God isn't late with his promise. As some measure lateness, he's, he's holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. Both God's heart and God's clock are often different than mine. And James and Peter and God seemed to invite us to wait with patience, like the trusting farmer. In fact, James adds in verse 8, Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. The word James uses literally is strengthen your heart. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. The harvest will come, but patience takes time. But there's another factor at play um, when it has to do with patience, and that is various stressors. Read with me verse 9. He says, Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. 
Now, first read, you might think this is a bit out of place in the midst of discussion about patience, but have you ever noticed that the stress of time often migrates into stresses with people? A friend uh, put up a post on a Facebook this past week, and uh, I'll not give any names so as to protect the innocent, but the gist of the post went something like this. The mom had begun to notice that her hair was falling out. She Googled it, and it offered stress as a potential cause. Her good husband suggested she should not get medical advice from Google. <laughs> well, the post continued. The night before, one of the daughters hadn't slept a wink, which meant that mom also hadn't gotten much sleep. Another daughter woke up with swollen red inchy skin, which required a trip to Children's to check it out because of some under, underlying health concerns. Dad kept the other kids at his work while the medical run occurred, and when mom came back to pick up the remaining girls, she heard the report that one of the girls had spit into her sister's drink and that the other, in return fashion, had put soap in the offending sister's drink. And on the way home in the van, in the middle of a lecture by the mom about the appropriateness of retaliation, one girl threw up, missing the bag that had been waiting in her lap, but fully getting it all over her coat, her seat, her tablet. And finally getting home, there was more drama and then the one with the upset stomach was sent to bed with a puke bowl. And, and even as the Facebook post was being written, that daughter was ringing a bell for service like she was in some fancy hotel. And my friend ended her post with these words. And that's why I think my hair is falling out. Well, the truth is, time under stress can do crazy things to our relationships. Just go on any family vacation after about the 15th time your kids have said, are we there yet? Somebody's probably already slapped somebody. And how's this shelter in place thing going for us? Has that been blissful together or has it frazzled a few of our relationships too? It happens. It's not just patience with time, that is long suffering. It's patience with people. It may start with a somewhat innocent groan. That's what the word grumble implies in verse 9. But we move quickly from that, from the I love you to you're getting on my nerves to I'm coming after you. Our grumbling goes public. Have you heard ever anybody say something like this? Warning, you're getting on my last nerve or, or variation of it goes like this. I'm down to my last nerve and you're standing on it. Well, back in 2012, a seminary professor, Sarah Schickner, did a study of patients that led her to identify three frequent types. One she associated with the less serious, yet can still be aggravating, daily hassles of life. A second uh, with the stress that comes from life's hardships, which sometimes can be really challenging ones. But the third type she related to is what we're talking about here, interpersonal patience. That is patience with people. James is not here just writing about grumbling in general, but about grumbling against each other. Not just moaning, but moaning about someone. It's been suggested that here James is introducing the politics of patience, how, how people get along with each other, the social aspect of long-suffering. Now, there were some things going sideways in the church relationship with the culture, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But here it's not the church versus the world, but it's the family member versus the family member, Christian versus Christian. 
there were enough problems in life for the church without having brothers and sisters at each other's throat as a result of the long wait of life. If there ever were a time when everybody in the church needed to be rowing the boat together in the same direction, it was during a storm. If there were ever a time not to make enemies of those who are in your own family, this was the time. That's what James is, is pleading. So why is it that those who are so close can so easily end up turning into enemies? What kinds of fights have you had with people that you supposedly love? Things that you said, relational bridges that you've destructively torn down. We all live under the same roof, but that sometimes is the reason why we struggle so much, especially when stress comes our way. Quite a few years ago, uh, Joyce Landorf, uh, Landorf wrote a book called Irregular People. She said, most everyone has at least one person in their life who truly makes living one continuous pain in the derriere. But what heightens the pain is that this person is not a mere acquaintance of ours. No, unfortunately, she says, it's more complicated than that, for we're related to them, either by birth or marriage. Our irregular person, as she puts it, is someone who is a close part of the family. It's one thing to have a neighbor who bugs you, but it's quite another to be tormented by somebody who lives in your own house. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago Rodney King's plaintiff cry, uh, can we all just get along? But, but he was talking about stress between those who have long experienced inside, outside the family racial tensions. Here James is begging family who should be getting along to get along. And in case just the friendly calling out is enough, he, he raises his pleading, James raises his pleading to a more red level kind of warning. He says, judge your brother and God will judge you. Pick on each other and God will pick on you. You've been clearly warned. In fact, he says, he's standing right this minute outside the door. When I was little, I'll go back there again. It's a lot of my lessons in life I learned um, when I was young. When I was little, there were times when my dad would be away from the house for a spell. Maybe it was work or on a trip. <clears throat> and my two sisters and I would get at odds with each other. I know it's hard to believe that three preacher's kids could get into serious squabbles, but we did. Uh, it was always first instigated by, instigated by my two sisters. Uh, maybe not totally true, but this is true. <laughs> the temperature of the conflict, which may have started with a playful banner, would cross a clear line into more outright sibling warfare. And about at that point, my, my mom would usually resort to saying something like this. You just wait until your dad gets home. Now, I need to say that my mom was no stranger to punishing us. She could, she could swing a, a fly swatter with great precision to sting young bare legs a bit just when it was needed. But to bring my dad into the equation was something else. You just wait till your dad gets home struck a tone of terror into the moment. A couple of weeks back, um, you may remember we talked about what James said about fights and quarrels and causes and cures and pointed out that it was rooted in our selfish desires that war within us. We're talking about your spitting in my drink and my putting soap in your drink kind of thing, but really worse. 
sibling conflict, conflict caused Cain to kill his brother Abel, and Jacob and Esau almost ruined their whole lifelong relationship over a selfish desire to claim the family inheritance. James seems to be saying that God won't put up with this kind of inner family conflict. Judge each other, and he will judge you. Get along with each other, and it will make the journey far more bearable. Interpersonal challenges, especially when they're within the family, have no place inside the church, the family of God. And he's quite serious about wanting us to realize that how we treat each other can have eternal consequences. And to make the point even more urgent, James says, we all may be waiting for dad the judge to come home, but you need to realize that he's standing right there at the door. Don't let him come back and find you bickering in such petty and destructive ways with each other. It will cost you. But as I mentioned earlier, um, as, and as James also pointed out in, in the letter, there are external stressors, troubles, and hardships. Some simple, but some profound that can wear down patience in us, too. Uh, let's read most of the last two verses, 10 and 11. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers, James says, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. Now, there were some bumps and challenges along the way for the early church, but it doesn't take very long in chapters 6 and 7 in the books of, book of Acts, the history story of the church, to see a greater challenge emerge. A church leader named Stephen was seized and stoned, and he became the church's first martyr. And Acts 8 opens with these words, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And a man named Paul was going everywhere to destroy the church, moving from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Two of those words are especially strong. The word persecuted and also the word scattered. Time had passed and family squabbles had emerged, but all the more profoundly, the church had come under some serious threat. When somebody comes banging at the door of your house and threatens to drag you off into prison, it it makes the wait for Jesus' promised return even more urgent. When was Jesus coming back? Was he coming back soon? Well, you get the sense of how the temperature of patience was rising. And it's also here where James introduces us to a different word to describe patience. In the opening passage, James used a word that carried the sense of being long-tempered, not people who are on short fuses of hope. But here it's a different word, one that can be translated as, as endurance or a trait that bears up under something, a serious burden or threat. It takes us back to the use of the idea in the word in the early verses of James 1. Or in verse 2, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. James challenges us as to how we are not just holding on, but how we're holding up, how, how strong our feet are planted, or 
what one commentator describes as patient fortitude. James, for encouraging purposes, calls to mind the ancient prophets who endured significant pressure but still held on. He, he doesn't mention any of the prophets by name, but some would surely have come to mind in the in the hearts of those that were reading his words, like, like the prophet Jeremiah, who was thrown down in a well one time with the intention to let him starve to death and die there, or Isaiah, that tradition says, died the death of a martyr. He was, he was sawed in half. Personally, I'd preferred starving in a well myself, but <laughs> Hosea had his, his heart repeatedly broken by his wife, who was a prostitute. Elijah was chased down by Ahab and Jezebel's army, and the list goes on and on and on about prophets that were tested. And then we come to James's mention of the example of Job. And we often speak about the patience of Job, but I, I'm not sure that's the most accurate way to describe his spirit. He lost all of his property, his children, his health, and even his wife and friends seemed to turn on him to some measure in the end. His wife urged him to curse God and die, and his friends, after expressing an initial short measure of sympathy, turned to suggest that Job must have been paying for some kind of error on his part and that God was punishing him. So they, they kind of left him in his misery. Now, Job surely suffered. But if he was patient, it was more this enduring kind that we've just gotten introduced to, that James is speaking up at the end of our text, rather than the long-tempered kind that he let off with. There were moments when Job got quite angry at God, challenging himself, challenging God to defend himself uh, over all that was happening. He asked God even to take a seat in the courtroom dock so that he could, he could kind of testify and answer his questions. It was probably more that God was patient with Job than that Job was patient with God in that kind of a long-standing sense. But I like the way William Barclay characterizes Job's situation. He writes in his commentary on James that as we read this tremendous drama of Job's life, we see him passionately resenting what's come upon him, passionately agonizing over the terrible uh, thought that God may somehow have forsaken him. But... The great fact about Job, he says, is that in spite of all the agonizing questions which tore his heart, he never lost his faith in God. In fact, in the book of Job, we have these words, Job cried out, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. That's in 1315. Later in the 19th chapter, we find these further words of Job in verse 19. My close friends detest me. Those I loved have turned against me. I've been reduced to skin and bones. I have escaped death by the skin of my teeth. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth at the last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, I will see God. Wow, that, that's enduring patience, holding up strong under pressure. Or to finish the words of Barclay describing Job, he says, His is no unquestioning submission. He struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished. I like the way a preacher named Ray Pritchard puts it. He says, You may learn your theology in the sunshine, but you discover what is your theology in a true sense at midnight. 
What you believe, at least what you say you believe about God, gets tested in the dark. It's not what you claim to be true, but what holds up under pressure. Job certainly had that test and became a great example of endurance, patience that holds on under the most profound stresses that life could bring. Okay, so we've considered the patience in the face of time and that that comes through stressors, but we close briefly with one last consideration regarding patience, and that is, you could capture it in the word purpose. We, we didn't read the very last part of verse 11 when we were finishing out the text, but I'll complete it here with you now. James says, you can see how the Lord was kind to him, that is Job at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. A literal reading of these words would be, you have seen the end, the Greek word is telos, uh, the, the completion of it all, how the story ends, its, its purpose in everything. The NIV puts it this way. It says, you've seen what the Lord finally brought about, or the Good News Translation says, you know how that the Lord provided for Job in the end, or the message says, you know how God brought it all together for him in the end. The hard thing about being patient in the middle of a struggle is not yet knowing how it's all going to end. In Job's case, he was unaware of this whole celestial challenge that was going on between Satan and God, and that that was behind all this horrible suffering he was experiencing. Satan was sure that Job's faith would cave if he just got pushed far enough. And so he kept asking God to allow him to do more and a little bit more. And Job's knew, Job knew nothing about this. All he knew was that he trusted God, even though all the painful confusion that life was bringing him. Even though he kills me, Job said, I have no other hope. I still believe. That's enduring patience. There is, there is something about uh, faith that sees what it can't yet see, that believes what it's not yet experienced. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about his experience of having his earthly body wasting away, painfully so, but saying that he was not at home yet. The ending of his story had not yet been written. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we live by believing and not by seeing. Or in another place of the church at Rome, Paul wrote these words, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Or another translation captures it this way. We can be sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Here's the bottom line. God, not we, write the end to our story. And his stories all end up ultimately, for those who love him, with something good. When you, when you read the story, when you read the, the, the story of Job, it's tempting to hear it all and say, well, trust God and you'll get everything that you had before many times over. And there are occasions when I'm almost wished that Job's story left him still sitting in the trash pile, still singing his 
song of stubborn faith. Somebody has said that his story is almost like playing country music backwards. You get your life back, you get your house back, you get your wife back. But all, not all stories in life get tied up so nicely here on earth. Sometimes we die on the trash pile. But still with confidence that our story is not yet done. And ultimately, it's not always about us getting what we want, but our growing through the process. Those who are patient often, often find the surprising discovery of ending up stronger. Now, there, there's actually nothing more countercultural than, than patience. We all want what we want, what we want, and that's right now. But God and James urge us to wait, to realize the story isn't over until it's over, and he invites us to be a community of faith that does not grumble with each other, but that spurs each other on to enduring faith. A few minutes back, I introduced you to a study on patience by that seminary professor. She was quoted in an article in the New York Times more recently. The article is entitled, How to Be a More Patient Person. It cites her work, and it says that she offers this suggestion that in dealing with frustrating circumstances, we need to reframe the challenging experience that we might be facing and connect it, in her words, to a larger story. She calls it cognitive reappraisal, thinking about a situation in a different way. Now, it doesn't say it in the Times article, but, but I have to wonder if this professor, a Christian from a faith-based university, isn't also saying that the whole of life story has a grander and truer end or purpose in mind. Perhaps that's how we can reframe those things in our life as we see the end through the eyes of faith. If the one who is writing the end of all of our stories cannot be trusted, patience would be no virtue. But James leaves us with this confidence reminder. The Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Or you could put it this way. God cares from the very depth of his great love. And he will apply that tenderness and mercy right down to the very last detail of our story. And that's an ending for which all of us should patiently wait. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for these words of James. I thank you for all that we've been able to hear from, uh, from, from this letter. Uh, we confess to you that in our lives, patience is, is not a lot of times one of our strongest virtu virtues. And I, and I pray that what we've heard from James today will teach us that it will instruct our hearts to trust in you. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. We come to a, to a time of communion here and I want to take you back to after Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. He continued to keep teach them, and John has a whole lot of uh, the body of that teaching. And when he when he talked to them, he 
He talked to them about leaving, and the disciples asked, What does it mean when he says, In a little while you won't see me, but then you'll see me, and I'm going to the Father? And what does he mean by a little while? We, we don't understand. And Jesus answered them, he says, You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. There is much about the story of Christ and time that's clothed in mystery, but it's also capped with a great hope. And Jesus was telling his disciples that the ending, at least for those who believe, is going to be glorious. And so as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup together, let's remember how his story ends. Let's pray. God, for these emblems that remind us of your sacrifice, we give you thanks. Help us to trust in you, to give you the pen, to let you finish the story of our lives. Help us to patiently wait. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.